0: Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony.
1: And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. Hey, Ant, I got a question for you. What up, James? What is it that I have done roughly 200 times and been frustrated every single time, you know?
0: (laughs) Ask me what's new and exciting. (laughs) That is exactly right.
1: (laughs) I'm, I'm at least glad you're self-aware. This, Anthony, is our 200th episode. Yeah, can you believe that? I kind of can't, because, you know, you might recall that I didn't want to do the first one. That's so right. that So <laughs> that we got to 200 is a little strange, but it's especially gratifying, I think, that on the 200th episode, we have Larry Reed in to talk to us a little bit. Larry is, without question, one of the classiest guys in the Liberty Movement, probably
0: in the world. He's a wonderful guy and a wonderful storyteller.
1: Yeah, that's right. So you're gonna have a great time with him later on. But for now, let me bore the pants right off everybody by saying, Anthony, what's new and exciting in your world?
0: In a recent episode, we, as in you, James, said that the new In-N-Out burger joint in Denver was the farthest east that In-N-Out has come. God, the
1: hate mail that came. (laughs) Everybody in Texas was angry with
0: me. We received a bunch of hate mail in response, pointing to In-N-Out burgers, of course, in Texas. I pulled out a map and verified that, indeed, almost all of Texas is east of Denver, and so the Texas In-N-Outs qualify as the furthest east. I can't speak for you, but I blame my not catching the error on my mental map of the country, which goes something like East Coast, Appalachia, Denver, blocky states, California.
1: It's something like that for me, I guess. In my mind, all the states exist in isolation somehow. Right. I have a vision of 50 different chunks in my head,
0: and that's about it. That's right. When I go to Texas, I'm in Texas. It doesn't relate to anywhere else.
1: I would hazard to guess that this is largely, if not entirely, because we live in
0: the era of air travel. Right. If you and I had to get on a train, things would look very, very different. Yeah, very much so. In other mail, Andy Allen writes this week saying, quote, I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time, and while other pods come and go in my playlist, yours is the only constant. In fact, I spent June 2019 through June 2020 deployed to the Middle East as an active duty military member listening to your podcast was one of my favorite ways to escape and get a bit of normalcy in a crazy world i thoroughly enjoy being educated and entertained by both of you weekly please keep up the great work andy if you think this is what
1: normalcy looks like we've really got bigger problems (laughs) with you we're gonna really have to talk about this
0: thank you for your kind words andy it's our honor to have given you a bit of an escape welcome home
1: yes those words are kind crazy but, but
0: very kind, so I thank you as well. As we record this episode, we're starting the second week of Advent. In the Christian faiths, Advent is oh, a special time of me hope. <laughs> Are you going to be a Grinch, James? <laughs> crying out loud. Just get it over with. Both economists and psychologists have found that hope is far more important than is wealth. People can endure poverty and hardship when they have hope, while people without hope often can't endure wealth and prosperity— In the bleakness of a renewal of COVID, I want to take a moment now to point to many reasons we have hope. Back in August, I made a prediction that if the economy continued to improve at the rate that it had been improving since July, the economy would largely be back to normal by mid-November. And here we are in mid-November and things are definitely better than they were in July, but we are not back to normal. This is due in large part to the resurgence of the virus and everything that goes with that. But in the spirit of hope, let's revisit where we were, where we are, and where we're headed. This past summer, the average person's income had dropped to the level it was in June of 2014. The virus and lockdown literally erased six years worth of income growth in a matter of weeks. Today, the average person's income is up to where it was at the end of 2017. We've packed three years' worth of income growth into just the last three months. If that continues, in another three months, the average person's income will be back to where it was before the COVID crash. Over the past three months, the unemployment rate has fallen the same amount that it fell from the height of the Great Recession to 2014. That is, we've packed five years worth of job growth into just the last three months. If that continues in another four to five months, our unemployment will be back to where it was before the COVID crash. We put the election behind us and whether one's pleased or displeased with the outcome, the fact is that this represents some needed stability. A big unknown has been removed and the fewer unknowns we face, the faster the economy would grow. The COVID crash has been the most intense shock to the economy since World War II yet all indications point to it being short-lived. We aren't at the end, but we are clearly at the beginning of the end. And that means we have much reason to hope that better times are just around the corner.
1: You may be surprised, Ant, but I also am prepared to talk about hope. You are? This is new. (laughs) Well, you know, I am on record, and it's a trademarked phrase, hope stings eternal, and never forget that. It's kind of weird, right? Because this part of the podcast is wholly unscripted. You go find your thing, I find my thing, and then we talk about these things. But we never talk about that prior to. Right, we don't coordinate. Yeah, no, so it's weird that we both ended up here. I'm going to go to something very strange. I guess you can look at it in an economic perspective if you want. But the fortune-telling business is booming
0: right now. You know, I keep seeing on my newsfeed fortune-telling things. I am wondering where these things are coming from. They're
1: coming from everywhere because in a time kind of like this, right, where we've got some sort of wholesale difficulty all the way across the country, the only place you're going to find hope is from people who are, you know, for lack of a better word, crackpots, (laughs) who can tell you, oh, yeah, things are bad, but you've got some good things coming, don't you worry. And here, Aunt, I want to make a disclosure, because as I read this, I thought about Harrigan family history, because my great-grandmother was a psychic who made a lot of money during the Great Depression. No way. So was my great-grandmother. Mine actually made enough to buy the family house with cash. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kind of bizarre. Now, I want to be fully on record as saying she called herself a psychic. Uh Uh-huh. I do not believe in such things, nor should anybody else. But that was what she said she did. And there are some indications in the family lore that she honestly believed what she was saying. Hmm. Be that as it may, it was a very, very profitable time for her when every other person in the United States was getting shellacked. If you look at the psychics right now, they are ministering, for lack of a better word, to a group of people... probably are quite poor to begin with and yet they will go and patronize a psychic in order to hear some happy news selling hope that's right they're actually literally selling hope and isn't that interesting
0: it ties in with our episode from last week when we were talking about risk and then segued on to the lottery i've often thought that that's really what the lottery is they're selling hope for 24 hours you can dream of what you'll do if you win the x million dollars And I will buy the occasional lottery ticket
1: when the pots get really huge. You know, look, I'm not great at math, but I know I'm never going to win the lottery. That's not hard math. But I do get to daydream for a couple of days Mm -hmm. about what would happen if I did. You know, the older you get, the harder it is to find something to look forward to. Dealing with this $2 kind
0: of fantasy, which is exactly what it is, it's well worth the $2. This is really interesting because... I've always been skeptical of people's complaints about inequality. I really don't think income inequality is a problem. However, the lack of mobility is, and that feeds right into what you're saying. If I'm poor, but I understand that there's a good chance that 10 years from now I could be middle class or rich, I can endure that poverty much better. That is, I think we're better off as a society, not with less inequality, but with more mobility.
1: I think that's exactly right. You and I have reached the age now where we can look back in our own lives and the lives of all the people that we grew up with, all the people that we met at certain key points in our lives, and we can see how we did and how everybody else did in terms of mobility, right? Mm -hmm. You and I were graduate students at one time. That's definitionally poor. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, that's just what it is. But we're not poor anymore, and we can see the kind of work that went into making that happen. It's a nice story that you can tell people who are at that bottom quintile right, right now. Right? You can say, look, we get it, and it's not like we want you to stay here, but the chances are very, very high that you won't stay here because almost no one does. Yep. I do feel the need now to put all this hope nonsense behind me and get to the foolishness <laughs> of the week which would kind of clear the air as far as I'm concerned, as is my custom. I ask if you have even the faintest idea what the foolishness of the week is. The
0: foolishness this week is that we were scheduled to record this section of the podcast at four o'clock, and I called up James dutifully when my calendar chimed and said, I'm ready to go. And James said, what? Football is on. That's the foolishness of the week. <laughs> the New England
1: Patriots are up 28 to nothing over the Chargers right now. And that little piece of nothing makes me infinitely happier than anything I ever do with you.
0: Let me translate for our listeners. James just said, sports, 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 And then he said, as usual, <laughs> you're, you're an idiot.
1: Just an idiot. Now, back to the foolishness of the week, you've lost your opportunity (laughs) to guess what it might have been. I do hereby censor you and you will be quiet. We're right back, believe it or not, to our fearless leader and big toe Donald Trump, who has said you have to really think about what this all means. He has said repeatedly over the last week or two that the presidential election as it manifested in Georgia is illegitimate, it robbed him, you know, whatever awful thing you want to say about it, he's convinced that in Georgia, the election was stolen from him. By? By, I don't know, all of those people, people who always are. figure into his crackpot conspiracy theory about what really happened. I mean, not for nothing, but if you want to know why Trump lost the election, and he did, you can probably concentrate on why it was that lots and lots of people thought he was such a jackass that they would never vote for him. Hmm. I just urge you to go away and think about that. But where the rubber meets the road here, Donald Trump whines and whines and whines about Georgia, and then what does he do? He goes to Georgia two days ago to campaign on behalf of the Republican Senate candidates. So on the one hand, it's all legitimate what happens with the vote in Georgia. On the other, vote for the people I want you to vote
0: for. You can't hold both of these things as being reasonable. Well, last I saw, the vote tally in Georgia was very close, like within a couple of thousand.
1: It was close, as it was here in Arizona. There were a number of states that were very close. But apparently, unbeknownst to Trump and all of his supporters, these results are being certified across the
0: country. We're done with this. Yeah, and presumably, I mean, the certification process is bipartisan, right? They've got people from both parties sitting there watching what's going on. Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: It's just a bunch of foolishness. But it'll be over real soon. The Electoral College meets on December 14th, and we never have to think about any of this crap ever again.
0: Well, till. Four years from now, when he runs again.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, and he is making that noise. And that's largely in anticipation of getting a lot of money into his bank account from the people who believe the things that he says. We'll see if he's actually
0: going to run in four years. I wouldn't be surprised with either answer. Something that we have to keep in mind is it really, I've said this before, it really doesn't matter who wins. There's not going to be any significant policy change. There'll be some changes around the edges, but largely speaking, all of our major problems will persist and our major strengths will persist. And so, What's happening here is less of a question, as far as the voters are concerned, it's less of a question of who actually ends up winning than it is of not undermining people's faith in the electoral process. That can be really dangerous. Right.
1: And that's precisely what Trump is aiming to do. That's actually his goal. It's beyond the pale. And somebody who actually loved the country and wanted to do what was best for the country would never do these things. But clearly, and probably this is a lifetime affliction for him, the entirety of the world just revolves right around Donald Trump. Okay, this is what you would expect. Now, my hope is that the Republicans can take some stock in what's happened these last four years and where that left them and maybe think through whether they want to go through this sort of nonsense again. And as an outsider, I'll say it as I always do, I'm not a Republican, comma, anymore. I once was. But as Reagan said of the Democratic Party, I didn't leave the Republican Party.
0: It left me. And I hope both parties take stock of the fact that in a number of these states, the libertarian vote could have swung the election.
1: Yeah, in a couple of them. Now, you and I both know that a sophisticated analysis of the libertarian vote after the fact almost always reveals that it took roughly equally from both sides of the equation. This year, I'm not so sure that's true. Hmm. I'll look forward to whoever ends up doing this research.
0: And to the extent that both parties take the libertarians, at least the libertarian voters, a little more seriously, they'll both tend to lean more toward personal freedom, which is going to be good for all of us. You know they're going to take the Libertarian vote more seriously next time because I'm running for president. That's right. James is going to run for president. You're damn right I am. And apparently I'm being dragooned into running with him.
2: <laughs> You're damn right you are. And,
1: and let's let's be clear, I'm not kidding. Yeah, he's serious about we it. We've got four years to think this one through. Let's get on it real soon. Whoever's volunteering out there, be in touch soon. But be in touch with Anthony because I'm kind of cranky
0: right now. To contribute to our hope, please stroll over to patreon.com slash words and where for less than the price of a fruitcake, you can give us something we'd like a whole lot better. Larry Reed is President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, the Humphreys Family Senior Fellow, and Ron Manners Global Ambassador for Liberty. Larry served as Chairman of FEE's Board of Trustees in the 1990s, and later as President of FEE. Prior to that, he was president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy and chair of the economics department at Northwood University. Larry has authored nearly 2,000 articles in, among others, The Wall Street Journal, Christian Science Monitor, and USA Today. He has authored or co-authored eight books and delivered lectures on economics and policy in each of the 50 states and dozens of countries. Larry, welcome to Words and Numbers. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, James. Pleasure to be with you. We wanted to do something special. This is our 200th episode. James and I have been talking about this for a while, and we did want to have you on. We've wanted to have you on for a long time. So this seemed to be the perfect confluence of events.
2: And congratulations on 200 episodes. That's fantastic. Yeah, they said it wouldn't last, but here (laughs) we are.
0: (laughs) Fortunately, politicians (laughs) keep giving us more and more material. (laughs)
1: That's right. It never ends. (laughs) Larry, as the listeners will find out soon, has a bit of a trap memory. Everything that gets into your memory hole stays there. You can remember all kinds of things, which as the bumbling professor type that I am, I'm a little jealous. But I think we could take advantage of your abilities today anyway, and ask you to go back to your roots in the liberty movement. Ant and I met Larry as he was president of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. I think that was the first time either of us ever met Larry. Yep. And your legend is profound. Larry, I have to tell you, everybody has a story about you, which is really something.
2: So we figured maybe here on our 200th show, we could hear your stories. Well, thank you. I'm a humble person, so you may have to drag them out of me. But my involvement in the liberty movement goes back quite a ways. I always have credited my initial inspiration for Liberty to a movie that most people today might think of as a little corny and dated, but that was The Sound of Music. And I saw that in 1966 as a 12 or 13 year old. And it struck me, I think, profoundly because it was probably the first time I ever became aware that there were people in the world who did not live in as free an environment as we had in America at that time. And as everybody knows, that movie takes place in Austria about the time of the Nazi takeover of the country in March of 1938. A lot of people would watch that and think it's a great story about a family, but perhaps not see any political or economic implications of it. But I saw it as a wonderful family who'd done no harm to anybody. And then along comes this rotten regime from next door that not only takes over the country, but wants to conscript the father into its military. And then they have to escape. So I was really eager after watching that movie to learn more about the history of that part of the world in that time in history. And one thing led to another, but the bottom line was that by 1968, I became acquainted with the works of the Foundation for Economic Education, became a subscriber to its magazine. Fee sent me books like Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson and Bastiat's The Law, Hayek's Road to Serfdom. I remember that was a little difficult for me. I had to come back a few years later and reread that one. But that's what really got me going. And I committed myself to advancing liberty in whatever way I could in all the decades ever since. It's an interesting
1: story, Larry, because you start by talking about a movie, and I think Most people casually dismiss that kind of influence. But the pop culture influences that we all have, I think, are likely more important in most ways than the intellectual moorings that we come up with later.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. Whether it's from film or literature or music, I think we underestimate the impact that pop culture has on people. And those of us who believe in liberty probably need to work harder and better and smarter At getting our ideas across to audiences through pop culture and not just the typical textbook or lecture.
1: (laughs) It's always seemed to me to be the case because I come to the Liberty Movement late. I'm in my 40s before I meet anybody in the movement. And they're really great at marshalling evidence to support arguments. Yeah. But they're not good at all about telling stories. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think the storytelling angle is probably where most people
2: think hardest about the lives they're living. I think you're right. It was my experience as a professor of economics at Northwood University that the things that the students I had would remember the best would be things that I wrapped a story around. Even when it came to things like opportunity cost, if I just explained as an economist typically would what that was, they may or may not remember. But if I gave them a story from personal experience, as I often did, then that would stick with them. It would show up on the exams later in things that they would write.
1: Right. So you end up finding your way to fee or maybe fee ends up finding its way to you. But that doesn't tell us how you really got involved. That just tells me how you got a couple of books. What was that next step? How did
2: you get involved to such a degree with fee that you could ultimately become its president? The reason that I began receiving fee materials in 1968 was that I joined Young Americans for Freedom that year. And they sent me, along with Fee, a lot of good stuff over the years that deepened my understanding of all aspects of the freedom philosophy, not just history and current events, but moral philosophy and other aspects as well. And so as an avid reader of things coming from Fee at that early stage of my life, it became a goal to write for Fee. To have something published. And (laughs) my father encouraged me, but my mother, she never really quite understood what it was like to actually write something. (laughs) She always thought that if you wrote it, you must have copied it out of a book somewhere. (laughs) So when I finally got my first article in the Freeman published by Fee, I said, hey, Ma, take a look at this. I got my first article published. And she would say, then, as she did in subsequent years, what book did you get that out of? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I started writing for Fee in 77, although I had written but had several essays turned down for a number of years. But good old Paul Perot, the editor at that time at Fee, always took his time to say, now here's what might have made that article better. So finally, I started getting them published regularly in 1977. I came to a fee seminar at Irvington, New York for my first time that very summer, 77, and got to know Leonard and the staff. Leonard, of course, only had another six years to live. Leonard Reed, no relation. But he asked me increasingly to give lectures in his place in various places around the country. So that helped uh, give me a base beyond just where I was there in Pennsylvania or later in Michigan, starting in 1977 through 84 when I was teaching at Northwood University. So one thing led to another. I became known to the folks at FEE. I was asked to be a columnist by former President Hans Senholtz, who was my teacher at Grove City College. He was president of FEE after he retired from Grove City. And then after that, he asked me to join the board. I served on the board for eight or nine years and chaired it for the last, I think, three years. I've been involved heavily with FEE really since the late 60s and have served in every capacity from chairman to president to speaker and author.
0: And not just serving as president, you continued to write. You have several books to your name. The latest was Jesus a Socialist came out this year. I thought James and I were prolific when it came to op-eds. You've written thousands, which puts an extra zero on what we do.
2: (laughs) Well, thanks. Sometimes I surprise myself with things that come out of my head and onto a computer. But I
0: have, like everybody, spells that are dry, where I go for days and I can't think of anything to write about. <laughs> you were talking about Sound of Music and how it struck you here hear people that are striving to move into a freer environment. I'm interested in your thoughts as to young Americans today who seem, not all of them by any means, but so many of them seem attracted by socialist policies. The best I could think is that perhaps we've become so rich we can afford, in some sense, socialism now. But what's the difference between the people now and the people then? Well, when I was growing up, of course, we had dozens of regimes
2: around the world that boasted that they were socialist of one stripe or another. And for anybody who took a moment to examine how well they were doing, it should have been pretty apparent that they were failing in some in a very spectacular way. So today's generation doesn't have quite that kind of extensive roster of failed socialist experiments around the world to look at. But I think they're also frequently sold socialism very superficially. That's why you have a lot of young people who say they're socialists, but you probe a little bit and you discover they also like entrepreneurs. So they like the idea of maybe starting a business themselves. They don't quite see how incompatible those things may be. But they're often sold socialism as if it's nothing more than caring for people. It's sharing things. It's giving them stuff. It's relieving people of responsibility. Who wouldn't be in favor of that? So if that's as deep as your understanding of it may be, you're likely then to say, well, I guess I'm for that. I don't think typically today's young socialists understand what it really is in a very fundamental and deep-seated fashion. If I could drill down just a little bit there, because you said something
1: interesting, you and Anthony both, this idea of superficiality when you look at a failed ideology. Yeah. Well, okay, fair enough. Now I want to ask the harder question. Do young people, and I'm going to limit myself to young Americans, it's really what I know best, do young Americans approach all political things with that certain sense of superficiality? Are they really looking all that
2: deeply at anything? Oh, that's a very good question, James. I have to say that I lament almost every day what I see as a superficial take by so many people on so many things. I think we have abandoned the teaching of things like logic and critical thinking, as well as the lessons of much of history. So many people today do look at things in a very fleeting, superficial fashion. And because they've been taught to have self-esteem, regardless of how much they know, they actually celebrate sometimes how little they know about which they opine so vociferously. There's
1: a couple of things here. The first is a casual, off-the-cuff remark. Most of the freshmen I meet coming into the University of Arizona, let me dial that back, many of the freshmen I meet come to college ready to teach not to learn. Yeah. They've already learned everything they think they know. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But on to your other point, this gets really interesting. Where did the American attention span go? I watch cable news from time to time, right? 24-hour news channels. And Ant and I joke about this a lot. What's the thing you hear most on a 24-hour news channel? Yeah. That's all the time we've got for this. Yeah. That's nonsense. You could talk about this for three weeks if you wanted, but 45 seconds is more of the bite that people get. And I think maybe that yields a
2: superficiality among the electorate. Oh, I think it does. I think it does. And maybe social media has played a role in this too. As amazing as it sometimes is, as much as it facilitates relationships between people, I think there's something about social media that hurts us. And I'm thinking particularly of being able to opine, yet anonymously, if you wish to, at great length about something you don't know anything about without being held accountable. You can just tune somebody out who might come along and say, hey, that's not exactly
0: right. (laughs) I don't know what's the chicken in the egg when it comes to social media. I've got half a mind to think that people's attention spans are shorter and social media simply markets to that. And we get this all the time, I'm sure you have as well, people writing us and complaining about some article we've written and they didn't even take the time to read it. All they read was the headline and <laughs> just assumed the rest of it. Yeah,
2: absolutely right, I've seen that myself. Antony, you make me think of Leonard Reed's famous essay, "I Pencil, of the many lessons of that essay, which involves a pencil explaining itself how it comes into being. One of the lessons is humility. Nobody knows how to make something as simple as a pencil. It requires endless skills and bits of knowledge from people who don't even know each other from all over the world. You couldn't make one yourself entirely from scratch. I often think that if people understood that one essay better than they do, more widely than they do, it might cause them to think twice before they opine on something. So I often find it's very useful when somebody pontificates from very little knowledge and yet they're absolutely certain of what they're saying. I like to say, do you know, by the way, you may not be as smart as you think you are. You don't even know how to make a pencil.
0: It's funny you bring that up. I just finished this semester. I was teaching an MBA class and I use iPencil as one of the early readings. And I teach a seminar style. So the students do the readings ahead of time. And in class, we simply discuss them. And when iPencil came up, a number of the students were wide-eyed, saying, This is really cool. I never thought about that and how true this is. And then the very next week, those same students are saying, Well, we need to regulate healthcare. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> 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 Well, that's why that's
2: why Hayek said that the curious task of economics <laughs> is to convince people of how little they know about what they imagine they can design. It's a never-ending task.
1: You'll be happy to know, Larry, that Ant and I bring iPencil to the high school program that we do, and every year, some thousands of high school students read iPencil as a result.
0: Wonderful. That is great to hear. We talk about, in this case, transferring the knowledge just from one lecture to the next, But I find even as I have students over multiple classes and I can see them slowly starting to get all of this and to change the way they look at the world, they graduate and then the next batch comes in and is starting back at zero again. This is a never-ending task of educating. For some reason, it seems that the socialist narrative resonates better. And somehow that's where they start. I never hear about faculty on the other side having to convince people that capitalism is a bad idea.
2: Yeah, no, I think our side, that is the side that advocates for freedom and free markets, is always going to be at a bit of a disadvantage, maybe a big one, because there's so much about socialism that is superficially appealing. Hmm. It doesn't take much to be a socialist. All that you have to think is that something that belongs to somebody else will be nice to have yourself and that it's okay to take it or hire a politician to get it for you. Bingo, you're a socialist. You have to understand other things like history and moral philosophy and economics and political science to really make an effective case, a well-rounded case for non-socialist alternatives. Socialism doesn't even have a theory of wealth creation when you think about it. Right. We're always talking about division of labor and comparative advantage and trade and all the details, risk-taking, investment, entrepreneurship that come into play in the creation of wealth. But socialists never do that. They just assume wealth is just there hanging from the tree ready for them to pluck. Right, We're always going to have a disadvantage there because our way of thinking requires something
0: deeper. You're maybe not a full generation, but half to three-quarter generation ahead of me and James. When we look around at the world today, particularly the United States, we see, as I'm sure you do, people on quote-unquote left and the right just talking past each other, not even being interested in engaging. Is that something that's new, or is that something that's been in the waters going back to your early days?
2: Oh, that's a good question, Anthony. I'd have to say to some extent, it's always been there, but I have certainly noticed that it is more profound and pronounced today than ever before. I have never seen so many people so quickly come to a conclusion that they don't even want to listen to what the other side has to offer. You saw that every now and then, 40, 50 years ago, but not like today. I think viewpoints have become polarized. There's not the degree of open-mindedness that I saw growing up. And that disturbs me a great deal. We had nothing back in the 1960s that smacks of today's political correctness, for instance. Mm. You had very little attempts by people to shut others up just because of their opinion. And yet that's par for the course on so many campuses and in the media these days.
1: Things have become quite shrill. Every time I see people start, that's the word I'm left with. And I don't know when things changed. Do you
2: have an idea of when we cross the Rubicon here? You know, many times, no matter what I've been giving a lecture on in public, I have audience members afterwards say, well, what do you think is the biggest problem in the world? And they expect me to say it's national debt or it's taxes or it's opioid addictions or it's crime or those usual suspects. But I always say the number one problem in America today is the same as it is in every country and the same as it's been in all countries at all times. And that, in a word, is character. Hmm. And so I think what you're seeing, this vociferous, sweeping conclusions, quick to condemn others, don't want to hear what others have to say, that is one aspect of what I fear has been a decades-long erosion of character. I mean, a person of good character, solid character, shows respect for the opinions of others, as well as their lives and their contracts and their choices and so forth. This is just part and parcel of a general decline in character and civility that very much concerns me because I don't know of a single country in all of history that lost its character and kept its liberties.
0: It's fascinating you say that because it's fashionable now to talk about diversity, particularly our friends on the left will will talk about the importance of diversity, and yet to take diversity seriously you've got to be open-minded. You've got to acknowledge that the other guy may have a point that you hadn't considered. He's coming from it from a different perspective. And in that sense, as much as I tiptoe around the idea of diversity as we use it today, in that context, I'd be with it wholeheartedly and say, absolutely, we need to take diversity seriously all the way down to the individual and ideas, not just what we look like. Yeah,
2: and in fact, diversity and ideas in what we think really is the one kind of diversity that should matter the most. Right. It should matter so much more than the kinds of diversity over which you and I have no control. I have no control over what color I am or where I was born. And yet we fret about such things like that these days more than we do about the things that really matter, such as what you think. This is probably a nice time
1: to get back to the main line of questioning, which was for you to tell us how you ended up becoming president of FEE. But as you left off, you were on the board of directors. What was the
2: magic thing that happened between those two things? You know, I had been asked more than once, many times, in fact, to uh, take the job as president of FEE, dating back to when Leonard passed away and Leonard Reed in 1983. I remember being told that summer he died in May of 83. And that summer, Dr. Hans Senholtz, who was on the board, was my former teacher at Grove City. He mentioned to me, he said, oh, we're considering a new president for Fee and your name is on the list. And I was surprised because in 83, I was only, what, 30 years old. Ultimately, it didn't happen that time. But there were subsequent times when people asked me. And each time I expressed increasing reluctance that Fee should stay at its ancestral headquarters in Irvington, New York. And so when I was approached in 2008, it just so happened at that time, I was retiring as president of the Mackinac Center in Michigan and intending to be a very active president emeritus. So I was somewhat available and I was approached by the fee board to take the job. And I said, no, I've told you guys before, I really think that fee should move for reasons of costs and needing a facility that more matched our actual needs. And at that time they said, well, we know that and we've already agreed it's time to make that move. So if you take the job now, you can help us decide where we should move fee. So I said, yes. And for me, it was kind of a capstone because I started my journey in this movement. Shortly after seeing that movie, The Sound of Music, I started my journey, my intellectual journey by reading mostly fee materials. So all these decades later, it seemed to be a fitting capstone to uh, be the president of the organization.
0: And so you're there as they're moving, and yet you're a Western Pennsylvanian, and Western Pennsylvanians are notorious for moving back to Western Pennsylvania, yet you moved to Atlanta. (laughs) Yeah. We
2: approached the whole business of a move for fee very professionally. We thought, well, let's write up some criteria that any new site should meet to maximize this opportunity. We didn't just toss the dice and end up somewhere. And so we chose such criteria as access to a nearby world-class airport, considerably lower costs of operation than what we were experiencing just north of New York City. We wanted to be in a city that would be attractive to young hires for the staff and other criteria. And we just ended up settling on either Atlanta or Denver or Dallas, And in the end, Atlanta really spoke for itself. We had considerable support in Georgia and contiguous states, and the airport here is world-class, so we picked Atlanta. So yeah, I like Western Pennsylvania, but I've tried to bloom wherever I've been planted, and I've never lived in a place that I didn't pretty quickly enjoy. So Larry, this becomes, I
1: think, a compelling history as you look at it in this linear fashion. But of course, we don't live our lives in a linear fashion. We just think of them that way later. Looking back on it, your time at Fee, what were the two or three big ticket items that you're proudest
2: of? Well, certainly the single biggest would be really saving it. Because when I was hired, my first day was September 1, 2008. (laughs) And if you remember, that was an inauspicious month for somebody to take over anything with the bottom falling out of the stock market and a big recession about to begin. But FEE already had some serious financial issues with a deficit of well over a million dollars. In the face of that burgeoning recession, I had to turn things around as quickly as I could. So through personnel layoffs, through other cost reductions, through working harder on the fundraising side, before the fiscal year was up in March... I was able to cut that deficit to about 900000 the next year to only 300000 and then all the years thereafter, we had surplus budgets. So just being able to financially turn it around, I'm very proud of that. A lot of people had written us off as this place is not going to survive. Secondly, I think imbuing the organization with a sense that character is essential to the case for liberty. That's been something I've been very proud of. I think if you just make the case for freedom and free markets by sheer outcomes and performance, then that's a strong case to make. But a lot of people will say, well, but some guy came along and told me later that it wasn't fair. So now I don't believe in freedom anymore. I think adding that moral dimension and giving it a very personal focus from the standpoint of character over which each of us has considerable control, I think that's a message that Although it was always there to some degree at fee, I really elevated it to an essential aspect of what we do. That helped a lot. It brought a lot of new contributors to fee as well. So those would probably be the two biggest ticket items. Number three would be some excellent hires. What a team we've put together and most of whom are still there and doing fantastic work.
1: Sadly, this is all the time we've got. I usually don't mind saying that, but this week I would have liked to have had, oh, I don't know, another four or five days to talk to Larry. (laughs) But this is all the time we've got. Be sure to join us next week on Words and Numbers. Until then, follow us on Twitter. The handles are in the show notes. And we'll put a couple of things that Larry talked about in there this week, too. Ant?
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us, Larry. My pleasure. That's all for us. If you'd like to send us email, please do, wordsandnumberspodcast at gmail.com.
1: And the day after Thanksgiving, that's when we're recording this. So please, take your cue and just be nice to each other just for a week. See how it goes. Try it out. Be nice to each other for a week and report back later. Ant, I'll catch you next week. See you next week, James.